Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Great, it's so good to see a full church. Um, and as you can see, we have uh, reason for our exciting building project. Um, We have known for some time that uh, we will at some point be needing to expand our facilities. Uh, If you don't know, we don't own this building. We're renting here, and we are in the process of trying to relocate to uh, CG on 3rd Avenue, um, 3rd Avenue Warmer and Albert Road, the corner there. We've bought properties, and uh, we're trusting God to be able to build in the near future. So, Please continue to pray with us. I will be giving a finance update next Sunday, so try not to miss out on that. We've got some really exciting news to share with the church. Um, We didn't want to get into those details because obviously it's Easter, and so we'll be doing that next Sunday, and uh, we'd love for you to be part of that process and part of the, uh, the joy of next week's announcement. So let's focus our attention. I mean, what are these Christians on about all the time with Easter? I mean, here we are, we've got a sing team, the church is full, we're going to be chowing uh, um, um, Easter eggs all day long, we're going to be doing hot cross buns and coffee, but you know, what's the big deal? What is this all about? You know, some, some people are worshiping and some people are gathering in church, you drive past churches and there's cars everywhere. I'm hoping I can help you understand today, what is the big deal? What, I mean, yes, some Christians say Jesus rose, but, but what, what's the big deal with that? You know, why is that such a big, important thing? And so what I want to do today is, is, is kind of take a little bit of a wide-angle view on Matthew's gospel and, uh, and then focus on a particular aspect that we see throughout Matthew's gospel, which is a theme called the twofold obedience of Christ. And, uh, and it's a technical term, that, but it's not difficult to understand. The, the twofold obedience of Christ, which, which points to the reality that there were two types of obedience that Jesus did in his life and in his ministry. Another way to frame that is we could speak about Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. These are the two-fold aspects of Christ's obedience. When we think about Jesus and his whole existence and his whole life and his whole history, the fact that he lived for 30 30 or so years and then ministered for uh, three and a half years and then was crucified on a criminal's cross, what is this all about and what was he doing? There were parts in those years where he was actively obeying and there were other aspects where he was passively obeying. And we could describe it like this. Just stick with me as we go through this, right? And it'll it'll all begin to make sense soon. Jesus' act of obedience, we could say, was his righteous life. His righteous life. He lived an obedient life to God's law. Neville told us on Friday that there were 613 laws, rules that God gave to his people to help shape a nation and to govern a society that would be ordered and structured and life-giving, not implode on itself. Because if everybody creates the rules, we know what that goes like, right? We live in South Africa. We know what that's like. If you create the rules, it's a mess. So God steps in in his grace and he gives guidance and he gives rules in order to structure a society, in order to structure life so that everyone flourishes. Jesus comes into that world. Jesus comes into the world, born a Jew, born under the law of God, and he lives a righteous life. He's 
actively obeying. That's the act of obedience. But then also we see a passive obedience, which is his suffering, his suffering and his sacrifice, where he didn't deserve that. He was undeserving. He was innocent because of the fact that he had actively obeyed. It's an injustice of sorts. You know, you do everything right and then you get punished for it. How does that work? This is the wonder of the gospel. So I want to talk a little bit about this because what we're going to do when I'm finished is we're going to sing a song together. And the song is a song by Shane and Shane. It's a new song. And the song is called All Sufficient Merit. All Sufficient Merit. What does that mean? Well, really, I think what they're trying to get at is the all-encompassing work of Jesus, which is both his act of obedience, his perfect life, and his passive obedience, his sacrificial death. This all-encompassing, all-sufficient merit. This merit of Christ that actually leads to our salvation. And so here's, here's uh, verse 1 and the chorus. It goes like this. All-sufficient merit, shining like the sun, a fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. And then the chorus is, it is done, it is finished, no more debt I owe, paid in full, all sufficient merit, not my own. Now the question I want to ask us this morning, in light of all that I've just said, that's the intro, is why couldn't Jesus have just come for a long weekend. You know, if Easter is the pinnacle, you know, could, could Jesus not have come, not for 33 years, but maybe just for a long weekend, like, like three days, you know, come on Friday, die, and then rise again on, on Easter Sunday, and, and there we go, it's all done. If, if Jesus, all he needed to do, if all he needed to do was to pay for our sins, then surely he could have done that in just a long weekend. So my question is, here's the question, you don't need to answer out loud. If Christ came to earth only to earn forgiveness of sin, would that be enough for us to be reconciled to God forever? Is it enough for Jesus to die for sins and thereby we inherit eternal life? And many would say, yes, yes, of course. What more could we possibly need? Well, the introduction should be a strong hint that we don't only need Christ's passive obedience where he suffers and dies in our place, but actually we need his active obedience. We, we actually rely, as Christians, our whole existence is rooted in this twofold obedience of Christ. We need his active obedience and his passive obedience. We need more, hear me carefully, we need more than just forgiveness of sin for breaking the law of God. We actually need perfect righteousness. We need to have lived as if we fully obeyed the law. Not only have we broken the law of God, but we've never lived up to the law of God. And so there's this double demand. The law, any law in any country has a double demand. You need to do this, and if you don't do this, there's a penalty for not doing it. You run through a red light, the red light, it demands that you stop. You run through the red light, you crash, you kill someone, there's a penalty 
right? And you've got to pay the penalty. So there's a double demand. The law has a double demand. You need to do something, and if you fail to do it, there's a penalty. This is why the double imputation of Christ is so important, the active and passive obedience of Jesus. Now, the mistake we sometimes make as Christians is we put it all to the Easter weekend, like I've been saying. We, we kind of focus everything, and it's like the ultimate pinnacle is the Easter weekend, and there is a lot that we could say for that, and it is a glorious weekend. But it would be a mistake to think that Jesus lived his life, and it was all active obedience, and then only at the end of his life did he passively obey. Listen to John Murray. John Murray, a great scholar, he says this. He says, it is our Lord's whole work of obedience in every phase and period that is described as active and passive. And we must avoid the mistake of thinking that the active obedience applies to the obedience of his life and the passive obedience to the obedience of his final sufferings and death. In other words, what he's saying here is, yes, Christ's Passive obedience culminates in the cross moment. It culminates in the sacrifice of himself on the cross, but it's not restricted to that. His suffering is not restricted to the long weekend, right? Actually, when we read the Gospels, we see that throughout his 30 years of life, there was suffering throughout that time. He lived for 30 plus years, and at every point and every turn, there was rejection, there was rebellion against Christ, and there was persecution. And so what I'm arguing for here today is that Christ's active and passive obedience is the mark of his whole ministry. It's the mark of his whole life. It is his all-sufficient merit that saves us. Not just a moment on a long weekend. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just walk with you, and, and, and we can't do this. I'd love to take the whole day, but I know you've got plans. So we'll take a few minutes. I want to walk with you from how Matthew's gospel begins. And, and there are just a few headings. And I want you to see how the active and passive obedience of Christ is interwoven, how he actually obeyed the law, and at the same time he suffered while doing it. And the first thing I want us to look at is how the, the gospel moves from genealogy to genocide. From genealogy to genocide. Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, we see this interesting interplay. Matthew 1 verse 1 starts, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how the New Testament opens. The New Testament opens with this statement. This is a book of the lineage, the family tree of Jesus Christ. And who is in his family? He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Wow, this is a serious pedigree, right? I mean, we're, we're immediately entrenched in a famous family tree. What a history, what a legacy, what an inheritance. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised seed. And this shows us that God's promise is still at this particular point in play. Because up to this point, David couldn't fulfill it, and Abraham couldn't fulfill it because they were disobedient. They, they sinned, and so there was no fulfillment yet. 
But God had a plan. And, and you would expect, with this type of royal lineage, you would expect royal treatment, wouldn't you? You would expect everything to go swimmingly for Jesus. I mean, he's, he's now here. The son of David is here. The son of Abraham's here. Royal treatment, right? No. What happens? Matthew 2 starts, and the Messiah, the promised seed, the son of David, his life is under immediate threat. Immediately. And could it be, could it be that, 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 that God's plan will now be spoiled by an egomaniac genocidal king? Listen to Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became, became furious and he sent, and here's what he did, he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. Mass genocide. All in an effort to interrupt the father's plan. And miraculously, Jesus escapes. And so immediately, we're plunged into the, the, the scene of, of royalty, the, the promise coming to pass, the royal seed, but persecution. Persecution, and we're gonna, we see the interplay of active obedience, someone who's innocent being persecuted. The, the next big picture thing we see in Matthew's gospel is this great crowds. Now Jesus has grown up and he's beginning to teach and he's beginning to, to live out his ministry and there are great crowds that follow him and it moves to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Like I said, I'm taking a very wide angle view here, but just stick with me. Matthew 4 verse 25 says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Listen, the, 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 the known world were intrigued. The ancient Middle East, these people were so intrigued by Jesus. Could he really be the son of David? Is he really the son of Abraham? Is he really the promised deliverer? Well, great crowds are following him. Matthew 8 verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Matthew 13 verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got in a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And this becomes a common phrase throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew loves to say it, great crowds, great crowds, great crowds. But how does it end for Jesus? It ends with 11, doesn't it? From, from great crowds, from all of the Middle East, from, from all these different regions, there are thousands of people, thousands. He feeds 5,000. He, 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 he has to get into a boat because the whole mountainside is filled with people and he's been pushed into the water. So he gets into a boat to preach to the great crowds. And at the end of his ministry, at the end of all this wonderful, profound teaching, he's got 11. And then we read this as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Towards the end of, of his teaching ministry, he's, he's beginning to move towards the cross in Jerusalem. And we pick this up in Matthew 26. From this incredibly big audience, Jesus finds himself all alone. Listen to this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in this moment, we see his act of obedience, submitting to the Father's will, and we see the passive obedience of Jesus colliding. There is both suffering and a willingness to suffer. There is a, an, a suffering that's going to come because straight after this moment, Judas arrives and he betrays him with a kiss. And that is a passive moment where Jesus isn't acting anything out. It's passively happening to him. But we see this interplay where he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then look at this verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them praying. Does it say that? No, he says, hey, come with me. We're going to go and pray in the garden. And, and then they go off and they go sleep. From, from audiences of crowds and crowds to Gethsemane where he's all alone. All alone. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Matthew's gospel then moves to the next scene, which is Golgotha to the garden. We've moved from genealogy to genocide, from great crowds to Gethsemane, and now finally from Golgotha to the garden. And we read this in chapter 27. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink. This is where Jesus is being crucified, mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. And so this is, this is Jesus's enactment of not my will, but your will be done. This is his passive obedience. This is him not actively obeying. This is him passively obeying. These are things that are happening to him. Why? Because he's, he's innocent. He doesn't deserve this. Why is he doing it? For us. This is his passive obedience for us. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. There was no doubt in their minds that he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. But now he's dying. Now he's dying. Surely he's, he's, he's maybe not all out that he kind of set out to be. Maybe he overpromised, and now he's under-delivering. Verse 50, we go down to verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And in this moment, as Jesus died and gave up his last breath, it's almost like, and there was a huge earthquake, it's almost as if, at this moment, we know that there was someone who loved us to death. He loved us to death. And it's in this moment that 
It's almost as if the, the father with his mighty hands was so satisfied with the son's accomplishment, with all of his active obedience and all of his passive obedience, that it's almost like the father takes the, the, the old covenant which has now been fulfilled in Christ and he tears it. He takes the old covenant because Jesus fulfills it and he tears it. All the rules and all the regulations, Jesus meets the demand. The demand of the law, he meets. And the penalty of the law, he takes upon himself. And it's almost like the Father's mighty hands rip the temple curtain as an illustration that it is done. It is finished. But here's what I want you to see. As I bring this to a close, I want you to see here that this death is actually so unnatural. It's so unnatural. Golgotha for Jesus. This is an unnatural death. What do I mean by that? Listen to Arthur Pink. He says this. In becoming the Son of God, in becoming incarnate, Jesus who took on flesh, the Son of God became capable of suffering death. So Jesus, the eternal Son of God, needed to take on flesh in order to become capable of dying. Yet, he says, it must not be inferred from this that death therefore had a claim upon him. Far from this being the case. The very reverse was the truth. Death is the wages of sin. And he had none. He did no sin. 1 Peter 2, he had no sin, 1 John 3, he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5. As such, death had no claim upon him. Hence we say, for the Holy One of God to die was unnatural. So why is he dying? For us. Not for him. For us. And the good news is it doesn't end there. And because it was unnatural, death could not hold him. It cannot hold him, which is why the grave is empty and the tomb is empty because Jesus could not be held by death because death only holds those who are dead in sin. It couldn't hold him. And so we read in Matthew 28, from Golgotha to the garden, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is why we meet on a Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake. Another one. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the gods trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Listen to this. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Now, this is profound. Golgotha gives way to the garden resurrection. Why? Because it was so unnatural for him to die. The grave could not hold him. I was reminded of a, a story of a, a, a preacher, an itinerant preacher in America who used to preach, and he kept being invited back to the same church over and over and over, and they would put him up in a hotel, and he went to the hotel, and he stayed in this hotel, and he actually got to know the hotel staff, and, and one of the staff who worked at the front desk, he became very close friends with, and 
The one season he came around again during the next year to come back to this church, and he stayed in the same hotel, and he went up to the same reception desk, and he asked the people there, he said, where's, where's John? He's, he's, he's not here. He's always here. Where's John? And, uh, and, and the guy answered, and he said, no, sir, he's no more. And, and John was only in his 50s, and this preacher was surprised, shocked, he had suddenly died. And the other steward said to him, no, sir, he is no more. Why? Because he's, he's dead. He ceased to exist. Now, do you see what they say? What, what, what do the angels say to the woman? They say, he's not here. They don't say he's no more. Why? Because he's alive. They say, look at verse 6, he's not here. He's there. And they encounter him in the garden, and they think he's the gardener. John 20 tells us, uh, John 20 verse 15 says, they supposed him to be the gardener. He's not here. He's risen. Because it was an unnatural death. It wasn't his to die. He did it for us. You see, the resurrection is the proof that he was innocent. It's the proof, it's the evidence that his active and passive obedience is enough. And when Jesus rises from this garden tomb, it's almost as if he walks out as the last Adam. You know the first Adam in the garden of Eden? He failed to obey God, right? That's why he got cast out the garden. He, he didn't obey, he disobeyed, and so he was ejected from the garden. But do you notice that the plan of God wasn't ejected? He was put out the garden. Adam was given a mission. Adam, you need to do this. The mission continues. And, and, and then there's Adam-like characters. There's Abraham who's an Adam-like character. And then there's David who's an Adam-like character. And then there's Joshua and, uh, and, and all the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And they're all these Adam-like characters, but none of them can obey until the New Testament opens and says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who is the last Adam. And not only does the, the gospel open with this, but Jesus walks out of that garden tomb as the second Adam, as the last Adam, and where the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And he fulfills the mission. He obeys perfectly. He suffers in our place. He dies and then he rises because the grave cannot hold him. I want to read the second verse of the song we're going to sing. I'm going to invite the team to come up, sing team, music team. And the verse goes like this. In love he condescended. He came down, eternal now in time, a life without blemish, the maker made to die. He didn't deserve to die. He actively obeyed perfectly. He passively obeyed perfectly, the maker made to die. The law could never save us. Our lawlessness had won until the pure and spotless lamb had finally come.
It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. Paid in full. All sufficient merit. Not my own. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sending your son who met the demands of the law in his act of obedience and then paid the penalty for us not meeting the law in his death. We thank you for this double demand, but also the double cure that Jesus Christ is our Savior thoroughly, sufficiently, all-encompassing. That not only, we, not only did we need forgiveness, but we needed perfect righteousness. And in Christ we get both. His all-sufficient merit is our only hope. And so we don't look to ourselves. We look to the conquering King, who conquered death and the grave, who walked out of the tomb, never to die again, the risen Lord, who is alive forevermore. Jesus, we thank you for your twofold obedience, which is our salvation, your all-sufficient merit, we are so thankful. We are so grateful. And in this moment now, we want to sing your praises and say thank you, Jesus.